0: we turn to the prophecy of zechariah zechariah chapter 8 zechariah of course numbered with one of the one of the three post exilic prophets three prophets raised up by the lord to bring the word to those who had been brought back from babylon haggai zechariah and malachi Haggai and Zechariah are contemporary. Malachi comes much later, probably some 70 years after this prophecy of Zechariah himself itself is made. Haggai and Zechariah came back with Zerubbabel, the prince of the house of David, and with Joshua, the high priest of the house of Aaron, with the about 50,000, the first great return of. of the exiles, and they had to preside over the building of the temple. The foundation was laid, and once the foundation was laid, well, it was planting time, and then once they had planted, they had to build their houses, and once their houses were beginning, they had to harvest. And then there was the intrusion of outside interference and the building of the temple itself was neglected. And Haggai and Zechariah had been moved by the Lord to reprove the people for their negligence of building the house of God and to encourage them as well. And that's what you find in in Haggai and Zechariah, reproofs and then also encouragements and incentives having to do with God's great promises. With that in mind, we turn to Zechariah, chapter 8, where the emphasis is especially upon the promises and the incentive to continue in the work of the Lord, to finish the work, not simply when it's convenient, Lord. We all know that, don't we? we? We'll get around to it, Lord, with the spiritual. First, we have to take care of our bellies and our bodies, you know, and then once we've taken care of our bellies and our bodies, now we can tend to the matters of our soul and the spiritual and we reverse what ought to be. And the physical and material comes first and when we can find time, we'll sit in the spiritual. Then it's time for reproofs and a reordering of priorities. And here is where the prophets come in. Again, the word of the Lord of hosts came to me saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I was jealous for Zion with great jealousy. I was for her with great fury now notice again and that ties in with chapter 7 when which reads and came to pass in the fourth year of King Darius. Zacharias begins in the second year of Darius, king of Syria of the Persia and this is in the fourth year and he makes a prophecy writes it down of chapter seven and then probably a few days later again the word comes and he finishes, what be begun in chapter 7. So, the Lord is jealous with a great jealousy, and I was jealous for her with great fury. That is, I poured out my fury on Babylon and brought her back. Thus saith the Lord, I am returned unto Zion, and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be a, called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, There shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, and every man with his staff in his hand for very age. That is, a staff due to his old age. I suppose today we would say uh, with um, hanging on to his his cart or so with with his hand, due to his old age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. If it be marvelous in the eyes of the remnant of this people in these days, should it also be marvelous in mine eyes, saith the Lord of hosts? Just pause there and comment on that. That word marvelous has to do with something so wonderful that they can scarcely bring themselves to believe it. It's almost impossible, Lord. And the Lord is saying, just because you think it's impossible, you think to me it's so wonderful it's impossible. I will show you my work and what I, the Lord, can do. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country. That has to do, of course, with Babylon. And from the west country, they have to be delivered from Egypt as well, where some fled. I will bring them, they shall dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. They shall be my people, I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, ye that hear in these days these words in the mouth of the prophets, which were in the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. In other words, it's time to finish the building project. For before these days there was no hire for man nor any hire for beast, that is, no profit in their labor. They labored, but they profited little. Neither was there any peace to him that went out, came in because of the affliction for I set all men, every one against his neighbor. Everyone was aggravated with each other. But now I will not be unto the residue of this people as in the former day, saith the Lord of hosts. For the seed shall be prosperous, the vine shall give her fruit, the ground shall give her increase, and the heavens shall give their due, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And it has come to pass that as ye were a curse among the heathen, that is of no benefit to them at all at one time, O house of Judah, so I will save you, and ye shall be a blessing, fear not, but let your hands be strong, that is, in the building of this temple. For thus saith the Lord of hosts, I fought, or if you will, I determined, to punish you when your fathers provoked me to wrath, saith the Lord of hosts, and I repented not. So again have I fought or if you will, determined in these days to do well unto Jerusalem and to the house of Judah, fear ye not. These are the things that ye shall do. Here's the second table of the law, beloved. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. Let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. This is Of course, in a congregation, that's who their neighbors were. And love no false oath. For all these are the things that I hate, saith the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came unto me, saying, Thus saith, the Lord of hosts, the feast of the fourth month, and the, uh, the fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah joy, and gladness, and cheerful feasts, therefore love the truth, and peace. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, if it shall yet come to pass, that there shall come people, and the inhabitants of many cities. And the inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go speedily to pray before the Lord, and to seek the Lord of hosts. I will go also. Many people and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to pray before the Lord. Thus saith the Lord of hosts. In those days it shall come to pass that ten men shall take hold out of all languages of the nations, even shall take hold of the spirit of him that is a Jew, saying, We will go with you. For we have heard then God is with you. As far as the reading of this prophetic word, you might do well to keep your Bible in hand in this introduction. As I said, the occasion for the book of Zechariah had to do with the negligence of the building project of the temple, laying a foundation, and then other things interfering, and not even having the courage finally to go against the will of some of the inhabitants of the land, and it lay there neglected, growing weeds and so on. And the prophets Haggai and Zechariah had to reprove, and also to encourage them to finish this building project. That's the occasion for the book, but this is the occasion for this chapter. The occasion for the chapter is found in chapter 7 and in verse 3. Verse 2, you read this. When they had sent unto the house of God Sherezer and Regimelech and their men to pray before the Lord. Now, that word house of God is literally the Hebrew word Bethel. And the King James men translated the word Bethel the house of God. You remember Jacob and his dream and the Jacob's ladder or the staircase to heaven and then he left after the Lord promised to bless him and he said this is Bethel, this is the house of God. And then also it was where the golden calf was, was set up in the times of Jeroboam. Most likely it's from, from the house of Bethel, that is from Bethel itself, that these men came to pray before the Lord and they went to the house of of the Lord, Notice, that's the temple. The house of God is Bethel, the house of the Lord is the temple. That is the foundation, where evidently there were altars as well to offer sacrifices. And they came to the prophet saying, should I? Now, they're speaking on behalf of the city. So, in the Hebrew, it was not we, since they're speaking as an entity, they say I. Shall I Bethel, as it were, weep in the fifth month, suffering myself as I have done these so many years. What's being referred to are fasts. Here's only reference to the fifth month. If you recall, in the chapter we read, there was reference to the fifth month and the seventh month and the tenth month as well, and the third month, four months. Here they only make reference to one month, but if they can be released from the fasts of that one month, then they can also probably be released of the fasts of the other three months. These were Fasts that they that their fathers imposed upon themselves in the land of Babylon. These are not according to the law of Moses. These are self-imposed fasts. And when they imposed a fast, it wasn't simply well. They had a call to worship as we do on certain calls to worship on Easter and Christmas. It was a Sabbath. No, nothing to eat from sunup till sundown. You might have some some water, and with children maybe some milk, but there was nothing that they eat. And while they were there, that fast meant they were praying the Lord, he calls it weeping, confessing their sin, you see, and praying for deliverance to be brought back to the Holy Land. So they imposed these fasts upon themselves to pray for return to the promised land. And now the men of Bethel say, we have returned, and we've been keeping these fasts for over a decade. Can we not finally be released from them? And to that, beloved, the Lord is going to give answer. So you have the occasion for chapter 7 that we read and the Lord responds in chapter 7 and his initial response in chapter 7 explains why he dealt with Israel so severely and sent them into the land of exile and would not relent due to their continuing in sin and why he scattered them. Notice how chapter 7 ends. I scattered them with a with a whirlwind among all the nations whom they knew not and the land was desolate. That's what they brought upon themselves. But Now chapter 8 and in chapter 8 there's a change of perspective and now God speaks of promises, promises to give them incentive to live in such a way, beloved, that they distinguish themselves from their fathers, to show they have learned from the discipline the Lord laid upon them in the exile, and then has an answer with, res- with respect to their fast. May you be released from your fast? Yes, you may be released from your fast. Are you to be released wholly from your fast? No, you're not going to be released wholly from your fast. Does that sound like a contradiction? Well, in the conclusion of the sermon, we'll show you why God's yes and why God's no is not a contradiction. There's a yes, you may be released, but in reality, I'm not going to release you. Only we'll explain why and how that is true. With that in mind, the promise of Jerusalem's renewal. The great promise, what is to characterize the renewed people, and in the interest of a universal benefit and gathering. Recall how that this prophecy ends, with men of the nations, ten taking the hold of the skirt of a Jew and saying, we are going with you. You have something we don't have. You have Jehovah God. And so in the interest of the universal, of a universal benefit, what characterizes the renewed people is in the interest of a universal benefit and the renewal of Jerusalem itself. There is here in this passage, beloved, a great promise that Jerusalem shall be renewed. Remember that these words of Zechariah are penned and spoken while Jerusalem is in a rubble. Jerusalem, if you recall, had been destroyed by the Babylonians, and now The Jews have returned, and they've laid the foundation of the temple, but they haven't even begun to build the walls of Jerusalem. That will not happen, you know, for 70 more years when Ezra and Nehemiah finally come on the scene, and then Malachi will be involved in that. Now he's speaking in the time when Jerusalem is simply a heap of of rubble, and at that time, the Lord of hosts, that is, of all of creation, that's what the Lord of hosts is. He's the, the Lord of all of the of the, of the the holy creation, which is as his mighty army that he will use in his own victories. I was jealous for Zion with a great jealousy. I was jealous for her with a great joy. And he says in verse 3, I am returned unto Zion and will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. I am returned. Not simply, I have returned you, Not even I have returned with you, but I am returned. The Ark of the Covenant is gone, then destroyed, but Ark of the Covenant or no Ark of the Covenant, I have returned. This is said, beloved, in the context, you know, of what you read in the prophecy of Ezekiel in chapter 11, when The nation would not listen to the words of Jeremiah, the prophet, concerning their sins and all of their abominations and so on. And finally, this word comes to Ezekiel, just a month prior to the destruction of Jerusalem. Then did it says, I will recompense their way upon their own heads, that is, the disobedient. That Then did the cherubims lift up their wings and the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood upon the mountain which is on the east side of the city, lifted up from the temple, and beloved Ichabod, the glory has departed. And now that city was wide open and vulnerable to the invasion by the Babylonians, Chaldeans of the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, to break down the gates and to slaughter the inhabitants and to demolish it stone upon stone till nothing was left. And the Lord departed. Now you have returned. But not only have you returned, the main thing is I am returned unto Zion. And, of course, he says, I'm returned to dwell in her. I returned as the one who is jealous for Zion, and I'm going to be in the midst of the nation. But he does that as he says to Zion and Jerusalem. These are simply two different names for the church. Zion, when you speak of Jerusalem, the focus is mostly on the throne, and the king, as you see, the kingly aspect of Christ's rule, and a military force, if you will. Jerusalem, the city of the king, and a warrior king at that to defend and preserve and even to expand boundaries. Zion has to do with the hilltop that's in the middle of the city on which the temple was built. So there the emphasis usually is upon the priesthood and the temple and the worship of God. So it's the Church from a military point of view, under the rule of Christ as King, but also, of course, the church as she worships God by the by the on the basis of the work of Christ as the great high priest. And concerning this church, I'm going to call it this messianic church. He says, I am jealous with a great jealousy. Notice he doesn't say I'm jealous of. That has to do with desiring what someone else has. I'm jealous of someone because someone has something or is something I am not, and I envy and want it. That's not God. He has all. But he's jealous for, and that can be a proper jealousy when something is precious to you as one's own name and reputation, but also, as I have said otherwise, of a marriage, of an engagement, and no third party may intrude into my engagement, someone flirting with my bride-to-be. I'm jealous for the relationship. And so Christ, God here, as the covenant God, says, I'm jealous for my people, for this church of mine that I've given to my son, referred to as Jerusalem and Zion. And I am returned to dwell in the midst of her. Not simply, I'm there. God is everywhere. But he says to dwell. That means I'm there with my presence in the way of mercy, and of grace, and of love, having to do with salvation, and I am there, if you will, as the gospel God, the God of promise, faithful to my promise, as a father, you see, with his children, dwelling, centered in the temple as the house of God, but a father with his children, and the gospel will be present with its promises in your midst. In the end, of course, pointing to Christ himself as the embodiment of the promise and the presence of Jehovah God. What is a church beloved without the gospel? And you can have churches without the gospel. You can have the Roman Catholic Church. And from an outward point of view, impressive. Visit one of their cathedrals or two. And what men have made in their cathedrals, rearing 400 feet up into the air of, of block and brick and of these wonderful uh, windows, pane glass windows, and what hath man wrought. And the worship itself has to do with man and uh, the accomplishments of men and the works of men and so on. But it's devoid of the gospel. And here Jehovah God speaks of the church as it has at its this matter of the gospel, of of the good news having to do with the promises that he has in Christ Jesus. And concerning this church, he says, Jerusalem should be called a city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain, speaking of the church from two points of view, as said, from the point of view of the king, military, and the point of the priest worship. And he says it has to do with truth and with holiness. Truth means this is a church that will be governed by the word of God. Isn't the word of God truth? When a church goes astray, is not governed by the word of God. It's no longer a city of truth, but it's a city of deception and of falsehood. But he speaks here of the church that it will be the city of truth, living according to the word, governed by my word, under the rule of my word, but not only... In the way of orthodoxy, notice he adds holiness, and of course that has to do with life. I'm going to renew to myself a church, Jerusalem and Zion, that will be ruled by and devoted to truth, to the true gospel, and its citizens, its members, devoted to holiness, you know, saints, holiness of life in my service. And where that is the rule, you read then what you have in verses 4 and 5, and this is most interesting. Thus saith the Lord of hosts concerning this Jerusalem and Zion that he's going to renew. There shall yet old men and old women dwell in the streets of Jerusalem, every man with his staff in his hand, for very due to his old age, bent over, but walking about and maybe sitting someplace in the shade. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets thereof. When you read of that, what do you think of? Well, obviously, there is then a sense of peace and security and an enjoyment of a life together. You have reference to two generations, the old men, women, and the children, but that implies, of course, the reference of the third generation having to do with parents. They're not named. Come to why it's these two generations that are named especially. But what you have there is a picture of a city that is secure, at peace, enjoying one another's company. I'll tell you what came to my mind when I read that passage and reflected upon it a church picnic, especially when I was growing up. And I'll leave a name where I recall it, in Johnson Park along the Grand River. And there were grandfathers there in their chairs, smoking their pipes and their cigars. Wasn't that so frowned upon? And talking to each other under the shade of the tree And their wives in some chairs as well talking amongst themselves, older women. And there was a ball diamond there and the young men were playing ball and having an enjoyable time together. And the children frolicking about because there were of course various park toys and so on with swings and teeter-tots and all the rest. And simply enjoying one another's company. There's a word, you know, bucolic. not going to go into the word bucolic, you can look it up, B-U-Colic, interesting word, under a fall day bright sunshine and all the rest. Peace, security, and the enjoyment of company and the city here, these people, you see, secure without fearing the enemies at the gate. This is not a reference, beloved, to heaven have reference to old men and women and children. And the simple reality is that in heaven there will not be those who are ancient of days and you will not have little children. That's according to Isaiah fifty sixty five, where the Lord says explicitly in verse 17, Behold, I create a new heavens and a new earth and the former shall not be remembered nor come to mind. Be ye glad and rejoice in what I will create. Jerusalem a rejoicing, a people of joy, a joy in my people. And there shall no more be, says verse 20, Thence an infant of days, nor an old man that hath not filled his days. The child shall die a hundred years old, the sinner shall be removed. But the point is there shall not be one aged, nor there shall there be the very, very young. Children will be in heaven, as Children have been taken from families, of course, and died, but when they are in heaven and they have the new heavens and the earth, they will be in a new body at the prime of the age they would have reached in the 20s or something, in the age have all the infirmities removed, and as they, the Bible says, their youth renewed as an eagle, living without the bonds of old age and the immobilities and all the rest. That's heaven what you have here is a picture of the kingdom of heaven beloved the new testament age and the kingdom of heaven is manifest on earth it's not an earthly kingdom but the kingdom of heaven is manifest on earth and when the holy spirit is poured out by the ascended lord the kingdom of heaven begins and it's ruled from heaven, that's why it's called the kingdom of heaven, ruled by Christ the king from heaven by his Holy Spirit. And what this prophecy is foretelling is that in that New Testament age, there's going to be a joy of fellowship and the oneness in faith with young and with old, gathered together in Congregations. Beloved, the reason there's a reference here to the old men, the senior citizens of the congregation, if you will, and to the children is because when there's times of assault and of danger, and especially by the enemy, those who are most vulnerable are the aged and the children. When it comes to an enemy, young the youth can flee if they will and escape the danger, not the old people. They're the ones who are going to be slaughtered, and the children themselves when there's troubles, of course. They aren't playing in the streets and so on. They're huddled with their, their mothers and asking, Mother, are they going to kill us? Are we safe? And they're worried and they're filled with anxieties, and their mother will have to say, I don't know, child. We'll have to wait to see what the Lord does. Well, that may have been then, but the Lord is saying, I'm going to renew Jerusalem so the days come when the aged have nothing to fear, if you will, from that point of view. They have safety and security, and the children themselves are playing in the streets and have security as well. That's the picture here, then, of the New Testament church, of a New Testament church that enjoys fellowship one with another. And that, beloved, that was true, following the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, is demonstrated by Acts chapter 2, the day of Pentecost. The Spirit is poured out. Peter preaches that marvelous sermon. And when they heard this, we read, the sermon by Peter, they were pricked in their hearts, and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter says, repent and be baptized every one of you. And there is the gathering of 3,000 souls into the New Testament church that first day of Pentecost, and that may just have been in men, but then notice that right after that, in the conclusion of the chapter, and all that believed were together, had all things in common. They sold their possessions, parted to all men, and they continued daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house to eat their meat with gladness, singleness of heart, praising God, having favor with all people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. They had a joy in each other's fellowship with his common faith and these common goals and these common aspirations, if you will. That's what's pictured here in Zechariah chapter 8. And Acts tells us that begins to be fulfilled in the beginning of the New Testament age and continues throughout the New Testament age. That believers, who are believers indeed and share the same gospel, and are dedicated and devoted to the same service of God, find a joy in each other's fellowship and have this unity and peace. I know, beloved, that's not always true in congregations during the New Testament age. There were times of division. We have experienced that, and of animosity, and of separation, and of grief of heart. And... Sad to say, that happens. Maybe over doctrine, error. They simply have to do with those who are personalities, and they may be very aggressive personalities and ambitious personalities, and they work division in the in the church, and there's grief and sadness. And the less beloved, as that sorts itself out, those who have the sameness of faith and the commitment to the gospel continue to find. A, joy in each other's presence and uh, life with each other, even in the rough days of the Reformation when they were called out of the Roman Catholic Church and many of them as a result, of course, began to experience persecution and they even sometimes had to go in hiding. But when they found themselves, when they found themselves together, it was with a gladness, with a a joy, with a unity, with a oneness of, of purpose and that is what this prophecy is all about. There is, There are times of sorrow and grief to be sure and even divisions and there certainly was in the church of the Old Testament. But here you see, it's not children who are fearful but it's children who are secure and they have fellowship together and there is a unity and a oneness and so this Great prophecy of what is coming, you see. And when those who hear, and, and when Zechariah makes this prophecy of the days that come, of the security and of this, of this joy and of this, of this oneness and being free from the the fear of the enemy, if you will, they say, "Oh, that would be wonderful, so wonderful!" But it seems impossible. We have the great enemies of the of the church about us. We have Persia under whose heel we are. And when will the days ever be that we are free from fear and from, from strife and, and division amongst ourselves. It would be a wonderful thing if were true, but we can't bring ourselves to believe it. And the Lord says, because you think it's so wonderful it can't be true, you think it can't be true. I can't work that. I'm reminded the love of a certain man named Thomas. And the Lord arose from the dead, and he appeared to the disciples in the upper room with others. And Thomas wasn't there. The Lord ministered to them and vanished for a time. And a little later, Thomas arrives in the scene, and they say, We saw him, we saw him, we saw him with our own eyes. The Lord has risen from the dead. And he said, You're dreaming. You want him alive so badly, you are hallucinating Get a grip with reality. These things simply cannot and do not happen. I won't believe that he has risen from the dead until I can reach out with my own hands and grab hold of him. Too wonderful to be true. I want it to be true. It's too wonderful to be true. And the next first day of the week, they're gathered in the upper room, and Thomas is with them, and the risen Christ appears. And he has eyes only for Thomas. And he says, Thomas, do you see me? Do you want to touch the scars of my wrist from the nails? Shall I show you where the spear went into my side? And he said, my Lord and my God, I believe. Impossible with men beloved, but not with God not even when it comes to the unity of his church on earth and the enjoyment of a life one with another. And you understand that's what this passage has in mind, this unity and this oneness of purpose and the fellowship together that he works. Something beloved, of course, that we as saints, believers, desire from congregation to congregation is certainly desired here as well, and it's something to be prayed for, for the grace and the work of the Spirit that the words that are prophesied here are fulfilled here and come to expression. In the end, of course, beloved, these words and prophecies will culminate in the new heavens and in the new earth, in the whole of the new creation, and... Then, of course, there is the everlasting security and the fellowship without sin. And what a wonderful thought one might say. I won't have to deal with other sinners anymore. Isn't that a wonderful thought? You won't have to deal with any sinners anymore. But neither will others have to deal with me as a sinner anymore. But the heart of it is, beloved, I won't have to deal with myself as a sinner anymore. And that too will be removed which sin always has the potential of working division and strife and who knows what. Free from that worked by the Spirit, perfect at last and in that perfection, you see this unity and oneness of service and of love for the same Lord and the same Christ. Lord haste the day when sin shall be no more. Meantime, as I said this morning, we have to live together as sinner saints. And how are we to do that? And this passage makes plain how what God requires of the sinner saints that may enjoy this oneness and this unity. He's not simply happy, he's not simply interested, Lord God, in the renewal of a Jerusalem, so so-called the church, so that there's happiness there, but he's interested in a church in which. There is a renewal of the people themselves and of the members of the church, a renewal of ourselves with a whole different perspective towards life. And that makes that's made plain when you read here in verse 8 that they shall be my people. I will be their God in truth and in righteousness. Now that simply means God, of course. It does mean God himself will be God and you can Take me at my word, I am the God of truth. But more than that, beloved, he's not only saying, I will be your God in truth and in righteousness, which righteousness I will work for you and impute to you. He also means that we will have a relationship as a God, as your God and people in the sphere of truth and in righteousness. And that truth has to do with a sincerity, you see, a truthfulness in the sphere of truthfulness concerning one's word and what what one says, and in walking in the upright way. And what that upright way is, beloved, is spelled out in verses 16 and 17. These are the things that ye shall do. He's Talking to a people whom he will renew by the work of the Holy Spirit according to his promise. And the call of the word will come to you as you're renewed by the Holy Spirit. And these are the things ye shall do. Speak ye every man the truth to his neighbor. Execute the judgment of truth and peace in your gates. Let none of you imagine evil in your hearts against his neighbor. And love no false oath. For all these things I hate, saith the Lord. And What's interesting is to explain that, you have to understand these are in contrast to what was stated in chapter 7. In chapter 7, which is the twin, you might say, of chapter 8, the Lord explains why he disciplined his people so severely and why he scattered them. And he did not repent from doing that. They cried and he didn't listen. He punished them anyway. And he says there, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. This is verse 8 of chapter 7. Thus Speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Execute true judgment, show mercy and compassion every man to his brother. Oppress not the widow, nor the fatherless, the stranger, nor the poor. Let none of you imagine evil against his brother in his heart. He says those things, but he says this in this context. But they, your fathers, refuse to hearken to these words. Jeremiah brought these words to your fathers, and they turned the shoulder away, pulled their sole shoulder away like a child Don't tell me what to do. And they stopped their ears and they would not hear. They made their hearts hard. They would not listen to my law. And in particular, beloved, the second table of the law. Then came great wrath from the Lord of hosts. And he came to pass that as I scattered them. And then he says as well in our chapter that they would not hear. They would not listen to me and so neither would I listen to them. That's chapter 7, see? And what the Lord is saying is, you are to distinguish yourselves from your fathers. The besetting sin of your fathers was not this, that they didn't bring me any offerings. They brought me offerings, all kinds of offerings. Go Go to the days of Christ himself, beloved. Those Jews were much like their fathers prior to the Babylonian captivity. Oh, they brought offerings, all kinds of offerings. Blood was on the floor. Did the Lord have respect to those offerings? The Lord had no respect to all those offerings. Why not? Because they could say, Oh, we love the Lord, we love the Lord, we love the Lord. And Christ said, Oh, you do, huh? How are you treating the publicans and the sinners? How are you treating the fellow members and so on, who have have need? How are you treating your spouses whom you weary of and then you divorce and put them out on the streets? And you love the Lord? You know what 1 John 4 says about such people, beloved? You know what 1 John 4 says about such people? I love the Lord, I love the Lord. Really, you love the Lord. And you treat your fellow member the way you treat your fellow member, with disdain and with a superiority, and with a harshness, and with venomous words? How in the world can you claim to love the Lord whom you can't see and you don't love the brother whom you can see? You know what you are, John says? You're a liar. Here it says, these are the things in our verse, these are things I hate. The emphasis, beloved, is upon the second table of the law. The inclination of Christianity and of false religion is the first table of the law only without respect to the second table of the law. I bring sacrifices. I maybe keep the Day with a certain rigor and so on. But when it comes to treatment of my fellow man and church, church member, I have little use for him and little good to say about him. And the Lord says, then don't talk about loving me. Don't talk about loving me because you don't understand what sins you have been saved from and what I had to do for you, or you would not despise your member in the church. What's striking, beloved, is how often the New Testament brings to bear upon the hearts of the members of the apostolic church a love for the fellow members, the keeping of the second table of the law. And it begins, of course, with honoring father and mother. But it's not simply don't do this and don't do this and don't do that, but the heart of the law is love. And love, of course, has to do with seeking the well-being of others and even the denial of self. How often Scripture in the New Testament emphasizes this matter of the keeping of the second table of the law as a proof that one is a believer indeed, that as we sang in Psalter 24, who have the approval of God. I'm just going to make mention to drive this home, just a few instances. I already made mention of 1 John chapter 4. I won't even mention 1 Corinthians 13. Christ himself in his ministry was asked, who is my neighbor? And the fellow who asked that beloved did it so he could excuse himself from having to love everyone he came across and just limit it to a few. Who's my neighbor? And the Jewish Apostate was, if they've done good to you, you may do good to them. That's your neighbor who's done good to you. And Christ has the parable of the good Samaritan. Why does he select a Samaritan? Because the Samaritans, of course, were despised by the Jewish elite. And there's this man in the ditch between Jericho and Jerusalem and the elite Spiritual, supposedly, the elite of the nation, a Levite and a priest go right on by him. But the Samaritan, whom that Jew in the ditch despised, because that's who was in the ditch, a Jew, who would never have thought of stopping to help him, that Samaritan stops, bends down, cleanses his wounds, gives him water out of his own bottle. My, think of a Jew. Drinking out of a Samaritan's bottle, unclean. Never give a Samaritan my bottle unclean. Samaritan gives him his bottle of water, picks him up, carries him to a hostel, and says, Take care of him, and I will pay the expense if more is needed. Christ commends that Samaritan and says, And you better learn to do likewise. This has my approval. This shows faith and the spirit of Christ himself, nothing less. And then you can go on, beloved. I cannot fail to make mention of James, who was Christ's half-brother in the book of James. And if you recall, he says, this is true and undefiled religion. What's the true and undefiled religion? defines it. That is, Christianity in practice. And it has to do, of course, with ministering to the widows and the orphans. Visiting the widows and the orphans in their needs and ministering to them. Why widows and orphans? Because back then, they had nothing to give you in return. You didn't do that hoping for something in return. You did that simply out of love to minister to them as Christ has ministered to me, you see. Without thought of, somehow receiving something in return. That's the true and undefiled religion. Then he goes on to say, and you have to keep yourself undefiled from the world, that's true. And then he says, and bridling the tongue. And he who doth not bridle his tongue, and especially when it comes to talking about his brother and sister in the church, such a man's religion is in vain, says James. Let's learn to control our tongue that we may edify and build up and minister Not cut down and slay and to assault the love of the neighbor, beloved. And one more instance Matthew 25. And the reason I make mention of Matthew 25 is because that has to do, beloved, with the final judgment. A parable and this great Savior of in the clouds of heaven with his angels, and all of humanity is gathered before him, especially those who have to do with membership in the church. And he discerns between, if you recall, the sheep and the goats. And that's not simply between the spiritual and the world. That's a distinction between those who are members of the church, you see, the sheep and the goats in the church. And what does Christ say concerning the Those who are goats, I never knew you. Why? When I was sick, you visited me not. When I was in prison, you didn't visit me. When I was hungry, you didn't feed me. When I was naked, you didn't clothe me. When, Lord, when? As you failed to do it to the least of these. My brethren, you didn't do it to me. And to the sheep, he says, what concerning them? When I was hungry, you fed me. When I was sick, you visited me. When I was in prison, you came and you ministered to me. Enter into the joy of thy rest. Why? Because they did this. No, not because they did that. That's based upon the blood of Christ and what Christ did. But as the distinctive mark that they were those who were believers indeed, and they knew what Christ had done to them, and were thankful for it, and showed it in their lives. The distinguishing virtue of those who enter into the into the heavenly glory, the heavens and the earth, are those who have been the keepers of the second table of the law, as well as seeking to keep the first table of the law. And so, beloved, the call of the prophet here in Zechariah chapter 8. These things ye shall do. Speak every man the truth to his neighbor. And this means Jewish neighbor, of course, in the community of the congregation. Truth means biblical truth. Be governed by the word and execute the judgment of truth and peace working peace, reconciliation as best as you can. That's the external, and then he goes to the internal, and not only do it external, but don't imagine evil in your hearts either, or love any false oath. That's the hidden thing. No, you must be sincere and consistent. Your external is supported by your internal, and what you really believe in your love will show itself in how you treat your brother with a kindness, with a consideration, and an interest in his Welding, even in his salvation, as we said this morning. That's here, you see, in this prophet. Now, beloved, comes the answer to the riddle. May we be relieved from having to fast these four times a year, in addition to what the law of Moses requires of us. And the Lord says, Yes, I will release you from your fasts. The fast of the fourth month and the fast of the fifth and the fast of the seventh and the fast of the tenth shall be in the house of Judah, joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. In other words, no more fasts. You're done with fasting. You don't have to fast. Instead, I'll give you feasts, see. Instead of fasting, you will have feasts. No more days of fasting. Now, feasts. What's fasting, beloved? Why does that have to do with love of the neighbor? Why does love of the neighbor mean they can have release from these fasts? What is fasting? Well, a fasting has to do with the denial of self, of one's own belly and appetite in the interest of the well-being of your souls. I put away that which has to my belly and my appetites, and I will concentrate for this day on what is a benefit to my soul, my spiritual well-being. Well, don't you see, love of the neighbor partakes of the same spirit. How do we love the neighbor? Only if I am willing to deny myself by nature. I don't want to deny myself. I want to be self-centered and self-serving and have others minister to me. But that's not how we are to follow Christ. He says, deny yourself, take up your cross and follow me. And when you love the neighbor as you should, in the marriage and all the rest, you and I have to be self-denying, and that's considered as a fast, you see. Instead of doing without food, we do without satisfying ourselves first, but we seek the benefit of the other's soul. And God says, that's the fast, I remove it. And now, you know what? You have to do this every day, not just four times a year. Every day, anew. But as you do that and you obey my word, you will find joy in fellowship, in unity, in love one for another. So lay my word to heart. Be not as your fathers. Listen to the word and give yourself to following Christ who spent his life ministering to the body of Christ. So do ye likewise in a self-denying and a self-giving love. That takes grace, beloved. You know that well. I know that well. Day by day. The Lord says, do that. And in the New Testament age, this will have, he says, universal benefit. We must be brief here, but there is universal benefit. It shall come to pass that there shall come people and inhabitants of many cities saying, let us go speedily to pray before the Lord. They're called to build the temple. Why build the temple, Lord? Why finish the temple? This is why you're going to finish the temple in the first place, so you have a place to go to worship. And as you go to worship in Jerusalem at this temple, there will be those who say, where are you going? We're going to the temple to, to pray to Jehovah God. And a man will say, you're going to pray to Jehovah God. Well, I'm coming with you. You're going. I'm going too. So the going of the building of the temple and have a place of worship be a benefit to yourself, first of all, to your own spiritual well-being as you gather with the saints. But you know what? As you go to the temple with the proper spirit, others may ask you where you're going. And that will be a benefit to them too. They may come to worship with you. But it's not simply the going to the temple, you see. It's how you live that adorns the gospel that will be the great attractive teacher, and many people, strong nations will come to seek the Lord in the host of Jerusalem to pray before the Lord. Notice no strong nation, not just fellow Jews, but he's talking here in the New Testament age, you see, the Messianic age. The Gentiles, and as we said this morning, there's Gentiles, who see, these saints gathering together, these Christians, and they have fellowship and joy, and they love each other and they treat each other properly, and they say, you know what? You have something I don't have you have a hope that never puts you to shame, which has to do with the gospel itself and the preaching of the gospel. That you have a fellowship and a unity together as well that I envy, we envy. How is it that we may enjoy it too? Come with us to the temple of the living God, which today, of course, come with us to Christ. Hear his word, confess your sin, turn to him and follow after him, and you will know the joy we have in Christ Jesus as we are united in one faith, one hope, one baptism, and one gospel. As I said this morning, it's the life of the children of God together, congregation together, who live together in a forgiving spirit as we have been forgiven, that in some way, supplements the preaching. And a man can say, that word they hear makes a difference because I know by nature no man is like that in himself. Someone is working in them who is true. We will go with you, for we have heard that God is with you, and we see in your life he must be. There is, obviously, a power to the blood and to the grace that you confess. So, beloved, how do we conclude? Live in thanksgiving for what God through Christ has done for you and me. Be thankful to him, but also be loved Let us be thankful one for another and what Christ has begun to work in us towards himself and ourselves as well. And Lord, haste the day when sin shall be no more, beginning with my own. Amen. Father who art in heaven, we thank thee for thy word and promise. We thank thee for thy abiding love to a people such as we are, As Israel of old, thou hast kept thy word, and thou hast worked a great work. May we see that work not only in the lives of our fellow believers, but in our own lives as well, where we have failed miserably, forgive, strengthen, and send us on to be of benefit to the body of the one who has so benefited us, Lord Jesus. Amen.